Hello and welcome to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, August 24th, 2023. The podcast that separates the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. A plane crash presumably kills Wagner leader Yevgeny Prigozhin. Kevin McCarthy suggests a Biden impeachment inquiry could begin soon. The U.S. imposes new visa restrictions on China over Tibet. Iran unveils a drone reportedly capable of attacking Israel. Trump's Mar-a-Lago information technology director recants his testimony. Rudy Giuliani turns himself in for the Fulton County, Georgia case. A Chinese dissident flees to South Korea via jet ski. The UK hails the world's first womb transplant as a massive success. UPS's union inks a five-year contract, avoiding a disruptive strike. And India makes a historic landing near the moon's South Pole. In our top story, Prigozhin presumed dead in a Russian plane crash. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Politico, BBC News, and Al Arabia. The head of the Wagner mercenary group Yevgeny Prigozhin, which in June launched a short-lived mutiny against Russia, is believed to be among 10 dead after a private jet crashed in the Tver region near Moscow on Wednesday. While the death of the 62-year-old was yet to be officially confirmed, Russia's aviation regulator said he was named on the passenger list. Officials also said that three crew members were alongside the seven passengers killed. It was added that an investigation has been launched. While the cause of the crash has yet to be confirmed, a telegram channel linked to Wagner claimed the plane was shot down by Russian air defenses. At the time of posting, it added that a second jet owned by Prigozhin was still circling the skies of Moscow. Online flight trackers later confirmed that it landed safely in the capital. Meanwhile, videos posted to social media of the plane's final seconds appeared to show a plume of smoke rising from the plane as it descended before erupting into a ball of flames as it hit the ground. Thank you, Eric. Here on the Verity Podcast, we like to separate the facts from the narrative spin. Eric just laid out the facts of that astonishing story. We're going to start off our narrative spins with a pro-Russian narrative provided by TASS. The cause of this fatal crash is yet to be determined. Law enforcement officers are on the scene and an official investigation has been launched. Beyond that, not much or should be stated, other than Yevgeny Prigozhin is believed to be among the 10 killed in the crash. We follow that with an anti-Russian narrative coming from Guardian. The Russian state had plenty of reasons to take out Yevgeny Prigozhin, least of all after his failed uprising that embarrassed Russia. While the details of this crash are not fully confirmed, it would be unsurprising if it was, in fact, a deliberate sabotage. And from time to time, we get statistics-based nerd narratives from our friends in the Metaculous Prediction community. They have an opinion on this story. They think that there's a 94% chance that Vladimir Putin will be president of Russia on January 1st, 2024. I don't know, man. My, my bet is on he's going to pop up in Ecuador in about 10 years. Who, uh, um, Prigozhin. Prigozhin? Yeah. You think so? Mm-hmm. Well, see, that goes. This totally blows out my uh, my conspiracy theory. I, I I thought that this whole Russian coup was a staged was completely staged by Putin in order for him to move his troops over to Belarus. So, but uh, man, you were wrong. Look, looks like I'm losing that bet in Vegas. I was wrong. <laughs> you big are. Time. You are. Man, yeah. you couldn't be more wrong, Adam. I mean, what are you thinking, man? Really? I'm thinking. I mean, cl- I'm thinking cl- clever military move, man. You you, oh. you 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 faint the coup and sweep left. Wait a minute. <laughs> I thought those rules applied to Tinder. Yeah, you swipe left. All's fair in love and war, as they say. 
Kevin McCarthy floats a Biden impeachment inquiry. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Huffington Post, Daily Caller, NBC, New York Post, and Washington Examiner. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, the Republican from California, says the House could pursue an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden when it reconvenes in September if Biden withholds documents related to his family's international business dealings and allegations that he accepted foreign bribes as vice president. In an interview on Fox Business Tuesday night, McCarthy told host Larry Kudlow that impeachment inquiry, quote, gives the apex of power to Congress in terms of subpoena power and access to documents. McCarthy specified that House Republicans are looking for bank and credit card statements from Biden and some of his family members, although he didn't mention any specific relatives. House Republicans are demanding documents that show he did not accept bribes from Ukrainian businessmen while his son, Hunter, worked for the company. An FBI informant claims Biden accepted a $5 million bribe from Burisma's owner, Mikola Zolovshevsky. McCarthy also referenced the investigation into Hunter's tax evasion as Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed David Weiss to oversee the case. Two IRS whistleblowers claim the Biden administration blocked Weiss from receiving special counsel status, which Weiss and the Department of Justice both deny. He also said an impeachment inquiry is on the table if the Biden administration says that Weiss's investigation prevents them from providing the House with information. The House's requests for documents and testimony have been rejected due to the ongoing investigation. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. We begin our round of spins with a Republican narrative coming from National Review. The Biden administration is playing political games and is abusing its control over the Department of Justice in order to obstruct the House's investigation. Whistleblowers have revealed the meetings and conversations Biden had with foreign businessmen, while others have detailed the preferential treatment Hunter Biden gets from investigators. The Biden corruption never ends, and the House must open an impeachment inquiry. MSNBC is going to follow that up with a Democratic narrative. The GOP continues its humiliating rhetoric as Kevin McCarthy threatens an impeachment inquiry over President Biden's bank statements. Republicans have floated wild conspiracy theories about the president and his son for years, yet none of these wild accusations have landed in the slightest. McCarthy clearly knows an impeachment inquiry is absurd, but he's still talking about it to score political points with his right-wing base. This story has also generated a nerd narrative coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 20% chance that Joe Biden will be impeached by the U.S. House of Representatives. Well, we all know that doesn't mean anything these days. None of it does. They hand out impeachments like they're handing out pins at a social gathering. Do you hand out pins at a social yeah, you gathering? Do. That's kind of I lame. always go to social. Do you have monogram pins <clears throat> that you hand out at your social gatherings? Absolutely. Don't you? What, what do they usually say? They usually say, get out of here. How socially <laughs> gathering of you. The United States sanctions Chinese officials over alleged forced assimilation in Tibet. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, DW, Guardian, and The Hill. The U.S. Department of State announced on Tuesday that new visa restrictions would be put in place on Chinese officials suspected of involvement in the alleged forced assimilation of more than one million children in state-run boarding schools in Tibet. A State Department spokesperson said that the new restrictions would apply to present and former Chinese officials, but didn't go into detail, citing U.S. confidentiality law on visa records. 
U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken cited a U.N. estimate given in February that claimed around one million Tibetan children have been forcibly placed into boarding schools in a program that allegedly aims to integrate Tibetans into China's majority Han culture with compulsory education in Mandarin and no lessons culturally relevant to Tibet. China, which denies the allegations of forced assimilation, took charge of Tibet in 1950, a move it claimed to be part of a peaceful liberation. The U.S. typically views Tibet as Chinese-occupied and has accused Beijing of committing human rights abuses there, releasing reports of alleged extrajudicial and arbitrary killings, torture, and severe restrictions on religion and freedom of belief, among other abuses. However, China sees Tibet as an integral and historic part of its territory and has denied the U.S.'s allegations. Eric, thank you for laying out those facts. An anti-China narrative is provided by Voice of America. China's treatment of non-Han minorities is atrocious, and there's strong evidence that one million Tibetan children are facing cultural erasure. The U.S. is right to hold Chinese officials accountable for their role in forcibly assimilating minority populations. We counter that with a pro-China narrative coming from Global Times. The U.S. consistently interferes in Chinese affairs while holding itself to a different standard, violating basic norms governing international relations. Unlike the U.S., China doesn't have a sordid history of deep-seated racism, and Tibet has long enjoyed a booming economy, a harmonious society, and effective protection of cultural heritage. Iran unveils a drone reportedly capable of striking Israel. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, JNS.org, Eurasian Times, Tehran Times, and Hertz.com. Iran's defense ministry on Tuesday unveiled a new unmanned attack drone that it claimed is capable of striking targets in Israel during a ceremony marking Defense Industry Day attended by Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi and senior military officials. The advanced, domestically produced aircraft, dubbed Mohahir-10, can carry twice the payload of the Mohahir-6 drone at 300 kilograms or 660 pounds and boast a flight range of 2,000 kilometers or 1.2,000 miles with a flight duration of up to 24 hours, Iranian state media reported. While Tehran claims the drone is capable of carrying all types of ammunition and bombs, in addition to electronic warfare and intelligence systems, a video released by Iranian media displays the drone along with a text of Hebrew saying, Prepare your shelters, also translated as, Prepare your bunkers, according to some sources. According to Iran's president, the drone's presentation proved Iran is an advanced and technologic nation. Raisi went on to say that Tehran seeks friendly international relations but will firmly counter any invasion attempt against the Islamic Republic, state media reported. During Tuesday's event, the air-launched Arman-1 guided bomb was also introduced, and deliveries of the Korumashar and Hajj Qasim strategic missiles to the aerospace forces of the Islamic Revolution Guard Corps commenced. The presentation of the Mohair 10 comes after Israeli's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu claimed on Monday that Tehran funded and sponsored a series of recent deadly attacks against Israelis. Those were the facts, and our first spin is an anti-Iran narrative coming from Jerusalem Post. The Iranian media is mainly spreading propaganda, 
Not only is the Mohajer 10 only about half as fast as the U.S. Reaper drone, but it only has a quarter of the payload of its U.S. counterpart. The Mohajer 10 is not a game changer, but rather proves yet again that Tehran is still a decade or two behind what competitors such as the U.S., China, and Israel have been able to develop in recent years. Iran poses a growing threat, but it's not from its drones. And Press TV is a follow-up with a pro-Iran narrative. Iran's Mohajir 10 yet again underscores that despite sanctions, the Islamic Republic is capable of making impressive strides in military technology and producing all the defense equipment needed by its armed forces. The Mohajir 10 may not be state-of-the-art, but Iran is rapidly advancing the development of fifth-generation combat drones as part of its drone program. Israel and the U.S. should race for future surprises from Iranian engineers. We have a nerd narrative for this story coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 49% chance that Iran will possess a nuclear weapon before 2030. Turning our attention back to the United States as a staffer has reportedly recanted a testimony in the Trump docs case. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, NBC, New York Times, CBS, and Al Jazeera. The U.S. Department of Justice, or DOJ, on Tuesday revealed that a staffer for former President Donald Trump last month switched lawyers and changed, quote, prior false testimony that was given in the case over Trump's handling of classified documents after his presidency. The staffer is referenced in court papers as the director of information technology at Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence. Multiple media outlets have identified Yusil Tavares as the witness. Previously, prosecutors working for special counsel Jack Smith requested a hearing about the witness being represented by lawyer Stanley Woodward, who, in a possible conflict of interest, also represents two other potential witnesses and co-defendant Walt Nauta, a Trump personal aide. The information technology director reportedly received a letter he was being investigated for potentially lying to a grand jury and weeks later switched lawyers and provided new testimony accusing Trump and two aides of forcing the erasure of the resort's security camera footage. Trump in June was charged with mishandling the documents and obstructing the government's attempts to retrieve them. Nauta was also charged. Additional charges were filed in July. Trump, who has pleaded not guilty, is scheduled to face trial starting May 20th, 2024. Thanks for the facts. Eric, CNN is going to start off the spins with a Democratic narrative. Donald Trump believes he can keep everyone's story straight by having just a couple of lawyers representing him and his co-defendants. But the DOJ is seeing right through this. The department is calling the bluff of the subordinates who think they can fabricate in this situation. It's just a matter of time before Trump is sold out by co-defendants who will give him up rather than face jail time for his misdeeds. And we're going to hear from PJ Media, who has the pro-Trump narrative. Trump never told anyone to delete any tapes, nor did they get erased. In fact, they were turned over to the DOJ, which has been weaponized by this Democratic administration. These indictments and all related news are a smokescreen to divert attention from the investigation into President Biden's bribery scandal. And the nerds of Metaculus have an opinion. They think that there's a 25% chance that any U.S. court will rule that Donald J. Trump is disqualified from holding the presidency before January 20th, 2025. And in related news, Rudy Giuliani surrenders in Georgia. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, USA Today, ABC News, and NBC. On Wednesday, Rudy Giuliani, an ex-lawyer for former U.S. President Donald Trump, 
surrendered to authorities in Atlanta, Georgia, and was released on a 150000 bond after he was charged last week with alleged attempts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. Giuliani, one of 19 defendants, including Trump, faces 13 charges, one count of racketeering, three of soliciting lawmakers to violate their oaths of office, three of making false statements, and six conspiracy counts related to fake electors. David Schaefer, the former chair of the Georgia GOP, Kathy Latham, who faces charges related to the breach of election machines in Coffee County, and lawyers Ray Smith and Kenneth Cheeseborough also surrendered on Wednesday. Former Trump attorney John Eastman and Georgia bail bondsman Scott Hall were booked and released on bail Tuesday. Earlier this week, Trump said he would surrender Thursday. Fulton County DA Fannie Willis set a noon Friday deadline for everyone who was indicted to surrender to authorities. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. Daily Kos gives us a democratic narrative. It is our first spin. Trump's co-conspirators, who are responsible for allowing him to nearly violate the Constitution and retain power, are talking tough now. But their past words and recent legal filings show they're ready to turn on each other in order to avoid prison. When this all shakes out, as many plotters as possible must be held accountable to preserve democracy in the U.S. And PJ Media has another pro-Trump narrative. Willis's case and the charges that have been brought violate several amendments to the Constitution. Giuliani and others did nothing more than their jobs as lawyers, advising Trump about how to handle his concerns about election fraud. The co-defendants are turning themselves in because they're law-abiding citizens. But these bogus charges will never hold up. The nerds at Metaculus are giving us another nerd narrative, saying that there's a 50% chance that Trump will be jailed or incarcerated before 2030. Sounds like a big old indictment party to me. Woo-hoo. Why weren't we invited? <laughs> Damn. I didn't want to be invited to that party, actually. <laughs> you didn't? Okay. In our next story, a Chinese activist reportedly fled to South Korea on a jet ski. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Guardian, CNA, and France 24. Quan Pyong, a Chinese rights activist and prominent critic of President Xi Jinping, has allegedly fled his homeland to South Korea, crossing the choppy waters of the Yellow Sea on a jet ski from Shandong province. This comes as the Incheon station of the South Korea Coast Guard reported Sunday that a man was detained last Wednesday. South Korean authorities found no sign that the man was a spy, adding that he called for rescue after his jet ski got stuck in tidal flats near the western port city of Incheon. Though the Coast Guard did not identify the man, South Korea-based campaigner Lee Dae-seon of the non-governmental organization Dialogue China told AFP Tuesday that the escapee is Kwon Pyong. The Chinese embassy in Seoul declined to comment. Lee added that Kwan was now mulling whether to apply for refugee status in South Korea, which only grants a handful of requests each year, or to choose a third country, as he has been politically persecuted by Chinese authorities since 2016. The 35-year-old Chinese national spent time in prison in his homeland for publicly criticizing Xi, and he is likely to have been subject to an exit ban preventing him from leaving the country legally to claim asylum. Eric, we're going to start off with an anti-China narrative provided by Economist. It's no coincidence that the number of Chinese asylum seekers has soared since Xi took office in 2012, even if that means undertaking a perilous journey. Beijing is tightening its control across the PRC regarding civil liberties, suppressing ethnic minorities, and not tolerating even the slightest opposition. 
Kwon is just the latest example of this appalling trend. Follow that up with a pro-China narrative coming from Global Times. It's very typical for the West and its allies to distort the truth to smear China, consistently identifying criminals fleeing the country as mere political dissidents. Take the case of Kwon Pyong, the so-called activist who ended up in jail for violating Chinese law, has once again revealed his criminal nature by unlawfully entering South Korea. And we're going to wrap this story up with a nerd narrative that says there's a 50% chance that China will score at least 5.70 on the Human Freedom Index in 2030. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Man, you know there is some guy at a cabana in China going, oh, he said he was going to come right back with that jet ski. Uh, um. (laughs) Doctors successfully performed the UK's first womb transplant. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Imperial News, Independent, The Week, Sky News, Evening Standard, and Times Now. According to a case report published by the BJOG, an international journal of obstetrics and gynecology, on Wednesday, a team of doctors has successfully performed the UK's first womb transplant. The donor, a 40-year-old mother of two, donated her womb to her 34-year-old sister who was born with Mayor Rokitansky Kusterhauser, a rare condition that results in a missing or underdeveloped womb. The nine-hour-long surgery was carried out in early February at Oxford's Churchill Hospital. Both sisters who live in England and wish to remain anonymous have recovered well. The younger sister has regular menstrual cycles and plans to undergo IVF treatment and use the embryos she and her husband have in storage to conceive. The cost of surgery, which included paying for the operating room and the patient's hospital stay, surgeons and medical staff reportedly volunteered, was borne by the Womb Transplant UK. Though the womb was successfully transplanted, the woman must take immunosuppressant drugs throughout her future pregnancies to prevent her body from rejecting the donor organ. While the transplant is expected to last a maximum of five years before the womb is removed, the woman can conceive a child only twice, as the immunosuppressive drugs reportedly carry long-term health risks. Adam, thank you for the facts of that fascinating story. Our first spin is Narrative A, and it's coming from Metro. This successful womb transplant gives thousands of women born with an absent or underdeveloped uterus but functioning ovaries, or women who have had their womb removed following cancer or conditions such as endometriosis, the possibility of getting pregnant and a chance to have children. The fact that more than half of women who received a womb transplant in the U.S. went on to have successful pregnancies should be enough to silence critics and cull any skepticism about the procedure. There's also a narrative B on this story provided by Sky News. While the UK's first successful womb transplant offers a glimmer of hope to women who don't have a functioning organ, it's risky, expensive, and is plagued by a host of ethical questions. It's reckless to pay an enormous amount of money to undergo a non-life-saving surgery that could likely have severe implications for the woman and her future babies for a temporary womb when safer options such as adoption, exist. And the spins just keep on coming, with a progressive narrative coming from Huffington Post. While this is undoubtedly a milestone, the UK's first womb transplant can't be termed a complete success until it also benefits trans women who are entitled to equal treatment under the Gender Equality Act. 
there's much more work for the medical fraternity to do before it can ensure that the procedure is safe and effective and can reach thousands of women, including trans women. And the spin's going to stop on a conservative narrative provided by National Review. Before transgender activists start questioning the medical fraternity for not doing enough research or limiting access to the procedure, they must take into account the hormonal and anatomical considerations that describe why they can't experience gestation and birth. Making such rare procedures a matter of social justice would only lead to social anarchy and chaos. Eric, I heard that not only that this was the first uh, um, womb transplant in the U.K., but they also use this this new operating room that is completely um, made of glass. Oh, yeah? Yeah, so it was a womb with a view. Oh, my God. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Thank you. I'll be here all week. Adam, Adam. Tip your waitress. We need to have a talk. Buddy. Try the roast beef. It's amazing. Yeah, we need to have a talk. Teamsters ratify a new five-year contract with UPS. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, CNN, Fox News, Associated Press, Wall Street Journal, and CBS. The Teamsters ratified Tuesday a new five-year deal with UPS, removing the threat of a strike that could have caused major supply chain disruptions across the U.S. The union reported that a record 58% of its rank-and-file members turned out to vote, with 86% backing the contract that will be in effect retroactive to August 1st, the largest margin in favor of a deal ever at the company. According to the National Master Agreement, both full- and part-time workers will get $2.75 more per hour in 2023 and a total of $7.50 by the year 2028. UPS will also recognize Martin Luther King Day as a full holiday for the first time and equip all delivery vehicles bought after January 1, 2024 with air conditioning. The union further stated that all 40 supplemental agreements were also ratified, except for one that covers about 170 members in Florida. Once this supplement is renegotiated and ratified, the national deal will come into effect. This new contract comes as UPS and union leaders agreed last month to a deal covering about 330,000 package delivery drivers and package sorters as the previous contract expired on July 31st. A 10-day UPS walkout, which would have been America's biggest strike in 60 years and caused significant economic harm, had been projected to cost the U.S. more than $7 billion. Eric, we're going to get the spin started with a left narrative provided by the L.A. Times. This settlement between the Teamsters and UPS underscores what can be achieved when labor fights are carried out fairly on a balanced playing field and will likely teach a lesson to anti-union companies who may believe they have the upper hand over workers. Given that failed negotiations cause enduring damages to both sides, it's unwise for bosses to play chicken with unions. This settlement could have a positive ripple effect on labor issues nationwide. We counter that with a right narrative coming from Fee. Another decade, another Teamsters UPS deal mistakenly being touted as a resurgence of the American union movement. Just like in 1997, when UPS capitulated to pressures from this cartel and again sought to crush competition among labor sellers despite the economy losing market shares, it's competition and entrepreneurship rather than unions that provide prosperity for workers. Our final story today has us looking towards the stars as India's Chandrayaan-3 lands on the lunar surface. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Reuters, ABC News, TechCrunch, and Business Today. On Wednesday, the Indian Space Research Organization, or ISRO, 
successfully landed a spacecraft near the South Pole of the Moon in a historic moment that drew cheers from watching parties around the country. The landing makes India the fourth nation to make a soft landing on the moon, joining the former Soviet Union, the U.S., and China. India is the first country to land on the moon's south pole where scientists believe frozen water could supply fuel and drinking water for future missions. This is India's second attempt to land on the moon following a failed attempt in 2019. The Chandrayaan-3 mission comes just days after Russia's first moon mission in almost 50 years, destined for the same region, crashed on the lunar surface. The Chandrayaan-3 mission, developed with a budget of less than $75 million, consists of a propulsion module, lander, and rover. The spacecraft carries seven scientific instruments to demonstrate safe landing and roving on the moon's surface. Many applauded India's successful landing on the moon as an indication of the country's emergence as a space power as the government looks to promote investment in private space launches and related satellite-based businesses. Adam, thanks for the facts of that story. The first spin is Narrative A coming from Business Line. Chandrayaan 3's soft landing on the moon's south pole is a historic moment for India and a huge boost for its space program. This is just the beginning as his success gives India confidence to configure more missions to explore Mars and beyond. And the narrative B provided by CNN. This milestone doesn't just signal a success for India, but also magnifies Russia's recent failure. Without a doubt, this mission marks the beginning of a new pecking order in space exploration, with Moscow slowly but surely losing its footing in the race. We're going to wrap up today's podcast with our final nerd narrative coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 50% chance that NASA will next land astronauts on the moon by December of 2028. You know, I was thinking of setting up a, uh, a little moon launch in my backyard. Oh, yeah? Okay. I think that's great. That's great. Yeah, let's just go. Yeah, you're going to go launch on my getting on the launch the moon, you know, get your little beers and get like folding chairs and launch up the moon. Hell no. If I get myself another of uh, um, them balloons, like put in time to, uh, to a chair. Oh, yeah, like that movie Up. And just say, take, me up, take me up to the moon. Keep going. It's it's called Up to, up to, to the Moon. Up to the Moon. That's <laughs> right. Yeehaw! <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, August 24th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers, and we figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. If you'd like more information on the Verity Podcast, visit our website, verity.news. You can also download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast.